Colossians chapter 1. We've been taking a very close look at verses 15 through 18 of Colossians chapter 1. Just taking it verse by verse, one verse at a time. Today we'll finish up verse 18. Let's read verses 15 through 18 together. It says concerning Jesus, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Let's pray. Jesus, that is our prayer, that you would have first place in everything concerning our lives, concerning your church. And Lord, we would even have the faith and the boldness to ask that you would have first place in our community. Lord, that you would move, that you would continue to move powerfully on this coastline. That your name would be lifted up. Your name is the only name by which men and women can be saved. Your name is a name that is above every name. Yours is a name that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that you are Lord of heaven and earth. And so, Lord, instruct us about that today and move us to action. Move us to be a church and individuals that would submit to your headship and put you in first place. That would live in light of eternity. And so God, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us through your Holy Word. And Jesus Christ, be exalted above all else. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys heard of a guy named D.L. Moody? D.L. Moody from about 100 years ago or so. In 1893, the World's Columbian Exposition came to D.L. Moody's town, Chicago. And it came to Chicago and it attracted a crowd of about 21 million people taking part in the exposition that year in 1893. And part of what was going on in that exposition was something called the World Parliament of Religions. The World Parliament of Religions. And what they wanted to do was bring together religious leaders from various religions and get together and talk about what the best part of their religions were and then try to stick them together and synchronize them and come up with a one-world religion. Now, D.L. Moody saw this gathering of people, 21 million people in Chicago, as an opportunity for the gospel, for the expansion of the kingdom of God. And so D.L. Moody, under the inspiration of the Lord, no doubt, rented out all the churches in town, all the theaters in town, and he rented out circus tents. And his plan was to hold evangelistic crusades that the Lord would fill those halls and theaters and churches and tents, and he would preach the gospel. And as he endeavored to do so, and he began to work toward that goal, uh, his buddies were encouraging him, listen, Moody, you've got to speak out against this world parliament of religion. You've got to tongue lash these guys. You've got to let them know that this is wicked and this is wrong and you've got to combat that and speak against them and speak against those other religions. Moody refused to do so. 
Moody simply said, I will preach Jesus Christ and I will make him so beautiful by simply revealing who he is that all men will gladly turn to him for salvation. And thousands came to the Lord through what is now called the Chicago Campaigns. Moody, in faith, saying, look, I'm just going to preach the risen Lord in all his glory and in truth. And thousands came to Jesus that year because of that move. And our text today and the text for the previous few weeks has been speaking about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. The supremacy of Jesus Christ, that he is above all things. The passage has taught us about Jesus' relationship to God, creation, and the church. Regarding his relationship to God, he is God. Regarding his relationship to creation, he is the creator of all things and he is the sustainer of all things. And then in today's text, regarding the relationship of Jesus and the church, Jesus is declared in the Bible here to be the head of the church. What does it mean that he's the head of the church? Well, first we've got to understand what we mean when we say church, or when Colossians 1.18 says church. It's speaking about the church universal. That is, every true believer throughout the world. Everyone that has trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that has repented of sin and received Him for the forgiveness of sins, everyone who is born again throughout the world makes up what is known as, in common vernacular, the universal church. And that's what's in view here in Colossians 1.18. At the moment of salvation, a person becomes identified with Jesus Christ and identified with other followers of Jesus Christ, and they become part of the body of Christ, of which Jesus is the head. What is exactly the body of Christ? How is it to function? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we study. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to read first verse 12. First Corinthians 12, 12. Speaking of our physical bodies, it says here, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, many parts, even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. The Bible here draws a parallel gives us a picture of the church. That as our bodies are made up of individual members, and yet they are one body, so is Christ, or the body of Christ. It's made up of individuals, you and I, but it is in the mind of God, in the word of God, in the economy of God, it is one body, one unit, one organism. Then we read in verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greeks, whether slave or free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit. At the moment of salvation, when the Holy Spirit is placed in us, we are baptized into the body of believers, the body of Christ. It means that we become identified with Jesus as the head and identified with other Christians as the body. 
This is not the same baptism of the Spirit as spoken of in Acts chapter 1, which is the baptism in which we receive power from on high. But this is an immersing into the corporate body of Christ, being identified with Him and His headship. Now verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. So there are many that make up this body, but the body is called one, and the body is to function as one with all of its individual parts. And so we have a definition for the body of Christ being this. It is a unit, or rather an organism, because the body of Christ is living. It is an organism composed of the members who have varied gifts and functions, like the different members of the human body. An organism made up of members with different gifts and different functions. Regarding those and regarding that truth, let's look in verse 4 of the same chapter. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. It says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues." But the one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. So we're told that the body of Christ is made up of individuals who have various gifts and ministries and various effects within the body. And yet it is one, and it is given by one God and by one Spirit. This list of the gifts here is not exhaustive. There's more gifts uh, listed for us in Ephesians 4. There's more in Romans 12. There's more at the end of this chapter. There's many more gifts. If you're not aware of spiritual gifts, how they ought to function in the church today, I I recommend that you go online, and I did about a 12-part series on the gifts some time ago at the college ministry. Go and listen and get educated on the gifts of the Spirit, please, because they are very important. Indeed, they are vital for the function of the body. For you and I functioning together with the rest of Christianity and in this church, the local church, they are necessary, and it's necessary that we have somewhat of an understanding of them. One basic understanding is given to us in verse 7 here. It says that they are for the common good. They're for the common good. They are never to exalt a single single person, excuse me. They're never to achieve his goals, but they are for the common good, functioning together for the building up of the body. And of this body, our text says today, Christ is the head. What does it mean that he is the head of the body? Two basic meanings. Number one, it means that he is the origin and source of the body, the church. Number two, it means that he is the leader and the ruler of the body, the church. He is the origin and source and the leader and the ruler. This means that the church body is to draw its sustenance from Jesus and the church body is to get its direction from Jesus both in terms of speaking of the church universal, the church local, like our church here, and then the individual members that make up the church, you and I. 
We are all together and individually to be getting our sustenance from the head, Jesus Christ. We're to be receiving direction and guidance and marching orders from the head, Jesus Christ. And so let's make it personable and applicable today. Are you, as an individual in this one body, getting your daily sustenance from our head, Jesus Christ? Are you getting your daily sustenance from him? Amen. (laughs) Jesus, there's one of us. Jesus taught the disciples that they ought to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Not give us bread for a week. Not give us bread for a month or a year. The instruction was that we are to rely upon him daily for our sustenance and provision. Practically speaking and spiritually speaking, which is what I'm mostly speaking about right now. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, come unto him. If we are weary and heavy laden, come unto him. We can and we ought to, as members of the body, come to Jesus Christ every single day for our strength, our sustenance, and our being. If we don't do that, then it means that one member of the body is lacking. It means that a member of the body has grown weak. And can you imagine if my right arm grew weak? I want to be able to function and do all the things that I ought to do. And so I want to keep it strong. And it is the Lord's desire that every part of this body would remain strong. And the only way to do so is not to do Christianity in the flesh, not in your own power. That's going to be sad and a failure. But to do it in the sustenance of the Lord. That means personally connecting with Him daily, expressing faith in Him and thereby relying on on him. Not only are we to draw our sustenance from him individually and corporately, but we are to get our direction from him. He's the ruler. He's the leader. The church universal is not under the leadership of any one man. The church universal is to be under the leadership of Jesus Christ. And the sub-leaders, the sub-shepherds or the sheepdogs are to be seeking direction from the shepherd, from the chief, from the commander-in-chief. We're to be listening to the Lord, watching what the Spirit of God is doing, and then getting in the flow of the Spirit. Lord, show us. Open up our eyes. Lord, we as this church want to be a part of what you're doing on this coastline. And so, Lord, as individuals and corporately, would you speak to us? Would you tune our ears to hear from you? Open our eyes to see where your spirit is moving, what you're up to. And then, Lord, steady our feet and our hands to follow after your work and to grab onto it and to plow ahead and not look back. We're to be getting our direction, our marching orders from the head. The Lord wants to lead you in your daily life. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, that those who are the sons of God are being led by the Spirit of God. Are you? receiving sustenance from him? Are you being daily led by him? It's necessary that you do it as an individual. And when you do, then we can function corporately in a healthy way. Let's look further at this picture of the body and Jesus as we go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 25 in just a moment. 
we have this amazing picture. Paul uses a relationship between Jesus Christ and the church to illustrate what the relationship between the husband and the wife ought to look like and how it ought to function. It's a wonderful, beautiful, glorious picture. But we're going to focus on the aspect uh, of Jesus and the church. So begin reading with me in verse 25 of Ephesians 5. It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Now we learn a couple things here. We learn in verse 26 that Jesus cleanses the church with the word. This is wonderful. He cleanses the church with the word. Have you ever noticed that between Sunday to Sunday, that when you're out in the world, it seems as though the, the gunk of the world gets on you? Those, those false ideologies, those profane philosophies, those horrific images, those perverse things that we're bombarded with in our society all the time today, doesn't it seem as though sometimes there's just a film of just ugh, stuff on you? Or is it just me? The wonderful expectation that we can have daily and then on Sundays corporately is that the Lord is wanting to wash his bride in the word. We get all this gunk on us and we come in here corporately and we sit under the teaching of the word and as the holy word goes forth, the Holy Spirit of God is cleansing the bride of Christ and just washing away the junk of the world, the false philosophies, the profane ideologies. That's why we give priority to the teaching of the word at this church because it is a way in which Christ washes, cleanses, prepares, makes spotless and blameless and glorious his bride, the church. But please, Christian, don't wait for Sundays to get clean. Don't wait for Sundays to wash. Can you imagine if you only bathed once a week? Sounds like a lot of you only do that. Not many people laughed. Well, for those of you that bathe once a week only, please bathe more often, if at all possible. But be bathed in the Word daily. Then there's no buildup of gunk. Wake up in the morning and get into the Word first thing and say, Lord, cleanse me. Wash me with the Word. Allow my mind to be renewed with your Word today. Allow my mind to be cleansed and wash. Lord, do that with me daily. It's a wonderful place to live and to be. Verse 29 tells us concerning Jesus and his bride that he also nourishes and cherishes her. Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church. I was at the college camp this weekend, the college camp that we have going on right now up in Big Barrett's, ending in just a couple hours. And I was there until last night. I got home at about 2 a.m., and uh, it's going glorious up there. There's over 300 college students, and it's just, it's unbelievable. The Lord is moving so powerfully. And uh, I had left Friday morning to go up and to minister. 
drove home last night after teaching, got home at 2 a.m., and of course my wife was asleep, so I hadn't seen her in a couple days other than laying in her bed, and uh, she sleeps with the covers like this, so I I barely ever saw her until this morning. I left the house before she was awake. I came to church, and at first service, I was worshiping over here. And she saw me, and she found me, and she came up, and and she just tapped my hand. You know, she just tapped my hand on the side here. And I went, who is this? And I looked over, and my heart went, and I reached over, and I grabbed her, and I just squeezed her in tight and just buried my head in her hair, and I just began to cherish her. I just went, this is my bride. I haven't seen her in a couple of days. Sweetheart, I love you. And was just holding her. And I just wanted her to feel so loved and so safe and just back in my arms. And so the Lord wants to do for you, the church, universally, locally, individually, corporately. The Lord wants to embrace you. He wants to nourish and cherish you. But are you walking up to him and tapping him on the hand, so to speak? Are you seeking the Lord? Are you putting yourself in the place to be nourished by him? Are you seeking that communion and intimacy with him daily? Because the Lord has already expressed that he wants to wash you, nourish you, and cherish you. Is that happening in your individual life? Listen, we need that to happen in our individual lives because we're called to function corporately as the body of Christ. And if one of us isn't getting washed, if some of us aren't getting nourished, if some are not being sustained, if some are not being led, then the body is off kilter, the body is off balance, the body is not functioning properly. And we are living in the last days. We are living in a time where the body ought to be functioning in its fullness and in power with every member doing its part. The hour is too late. The gospel is too precious. Heaven is too wonderful. Hell is too real for us not to be connected with the head Jesus Christ and therefore functioning as a body in the power of the Lord. Amen? but it comes down to individual responsibility and your daily life as a Christian. And it is the head that ordains the body to do his will. When I want to move my arm, my head says, move your arm. When I want to move my legs, my head says, move your legs. When I want to look somewhere, my head tells my eyes to look. And so it is Jesus Christ, the head, that gives us our marching orders. And just like my right hand responds... And my left leg responds, church, we got to respond. If the head is saying, do thus and so, be quick to do thus and so. It seems as though we're so quick to do evil as people, but so slow to do righteousness. It's not that we don't know what we ought to do. We usually know what we ought to do as Christians. It's just that we're slow in doing it. But the Bible declares that now is the time. That today is the day. The Bible speaks in the idea of today. Today is the day to obey. Today is the day to get right. Today is the day to walk in the power and the spirit of the Lord. Today is the day to serve him. Today is the day of salvation. Concerning tomorrow, Jesus said tomorrow has enough drama of its own. Worry about today. And what you are doing with Jesus today. Don't put righteousness off till tomorrow. If the Lord is calling you to do something, do it now. Don't him and ha. It's better to err on the side of doing it 
than to just kind of uh, go for it. If you blew it and you stepped out too soon, the Lord will go, oh, silly kid. Let me pick you up and clean you off. Come here, let's try again. He's bigger than our mistakes. You understand that? He's bigger than our mistakes. It says in the book of Daniel that those who know the Lord will attempt great exploits for him. In the last days, those who know the Lord will attempt great exploits for him. Do you know the Lord? Is he your head today? Are you a member of the church? Then do something for the cause of the gospel. Do something for the glory of God. Do that which he is calling you to do. 1 Peter 4.10 says, Each has been given a special gift. Use it, therefore, in the serving of one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Manifold meaning in its various forms. Each has been given a special gift, Use it, therefore. Read the Bible carefully there. Each ha- every one of us has a gift, or I would argue multiple gifts. We all have at least a gift. The Bible says, use it, therefore, as good stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Not of the wrath of God, not of the condemnation, but of the grace of God. A steward is one who distributes. A steward is one who has oversight over resources. We are called to be the distributors of the grace of God within our sphere of influence. We are called to be the overseers of the grace of God, to give it out in its various forms as the situation calls and has need for. You have a special gift. Use it to bring the grace, the unmerited favor of God into people's lives. In your sphere of influence, your family, your co-workers, your schoolmates, your friends, your neighborhood, your community. Use what God has given you. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's workmanship. The idea is masterpiece, work of art. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We know that we are not saved by good works, are we? We're saved by grace through faith alone. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works, do you understand? That if you're a Christian, there is an expectation from God that your life will bear fruit. And as long as we're abiding in the vine, who is Christ, we will bear much fruit. If we refuse to abide in the vine, we will not bear any fruit, Jesus said in John chapter 15. But God has already prepared good works beforehand, he's done it, that we should walk in them. The phraseology should means that some won't. Some people just seem to never catch the vision of the kingdom of God, never seem to take personal responsibility for the things of God, and just refuse to walk in the good works that he's prepared for them. That's a tragedy. That's sad. God has so much more for you. And I have found that a key to discovering God's will for your life is moment by moment taking the opportunities for good works that he gives you. You see, God's never going to give you the 10-year plan. Why? Because if he gave you the 10-year plan, when would you pray next? In 10 years. God knows this about us. He knows we are but dirt, Psalm 103 says. 
And so the Lord leads us step by step, moment by moment. And one of the ways that he leads us into his will is by these good works that he's prepared. They're like a road map. And so that means you need to be daily prayerful, daily looking. Lord, what do you have for me today? I'm going to work today. And if you just want me to crunch numbers on the computer or file these paper or make these surfboards or whatever, if you just want me to do that, Lord, that's cool. And I'm going to do it to your glory. I'm going to do it not as a man pleaser, but to please you, Lord. I'm going to do it as serving you. But if you have some sort of supernatural opportunity for me, an opportunity to minister to somebody, love somebody, Lord, don't let me miss it. Open my eyes, open my ears, steady my feet to walk in that. And then just be looking. Just be looking, Lord, what do you have? And you'll find that more than you ever thought, he's prepared good works for you. He's a great economist. He doesn't want to waste your time, and he's not going to waste his time. He's prepared many good works for you. The secret is, Lord, show me those. And then when they are revealed to you, walk in them. Don't create your own opportunities. Don't do ministry in the flesh. Walk in them as God presents them. And as you walk in them, there's one. Here's one. Here's one. Here's one. Over the course of time, you will find yourself right smack dab in the middle of the will of God. And you'll look around and say, I never could have planned this. I couldn't have applauded this. I couldn't have manufactured this. All I did was be daily obedient to the Lord, take the opportunities that he gave to me, small and big alike, and here the Lord has me. It's a wonderful truth of the word of God. You've been given a special gift. Use it, therefore, in the serving of one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Walk in the good works he's prepared before him. But do you know what your spiritual gifts are? You have one. You have multiple, I would argue. Do you know what they are? If you don't know what they are, that's okay. But I'm telling you now, you need to discover them. I'll tell you exactly how to discover them. You don't take a survey. It's not to be found in some book you read. Here's what you do. You just begin to love people and serve them. Wherever, whenever. Any opportunity that comes your way. You just begin to love people and serve them. And you will see that your gifting becomes apparent, that it rises to the top. Why? Because they are to function in service and in love. That's what the gifts are for. They're to function in that way. And so if you see a need, go after it. You may discover that you have that gift, that you are the person to meet that need. I believe that in the local church, if a need becomes apparent, it's because God has already gifted someone to meet that need. They just need to see that need and go after it. Do you know what your gifts are? If you don't, it's probably because you're a little too self-consumed. And you just need to start serving people and the gifts will come out. Someone need to be told about Jesus? Tell them. Maybe you have the gift of preaching or evangelism. Somebody need to be instructed in true doctrine? Tell them maybe you have the gift of teaching. Somebody needs some practical help moving? Go and help them. Maybe you have the gift of service. Somebody needs some organizational stuff? Maybe you have the gift of ministration. Is somebody in a quandary and they don't know what to do? Ask the Lord if the Lord would give you a word for them. Maybe he'll give you a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. Or maybe he'll speak through you prophetically. Or maybe you have the gift of mercy and someone is hurting and you could come alongside them and comfort them. Various gifts. One body, one God, 
one spirit that gives them. They are to function in the body for the building up of the body and outside the body for the evangelization of the world. Do you know what your gifts are? Are you walking in them daily? If not, you ought to make it a goal from this day forward to discover those things. Some of the members of the body are given gifts and assignments that function as leadership roles. And the job of leadership in the church, church universal, church local, is to equip the body to do the ministry. Look at Ephesians 4, just one page back. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. says concerning Jesus. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service or the work of the ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. Who is ministry to be done by? The work of the kingdom of God. Who is supposed to do it? You're supposed to do it. The general body, according to the Bible, is to do the work of the ministry. The job of leadership, as called and gifted by God, is to equip the general body to do the work of the ministry. You see, the church oftentimes, not being biblical, has gotten the mindset that, well, the leaders do the ministry. They're paid to do the ministry. I pay Brit to do it. He ought to do it. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere, I'm sorry to tell you. The Bible teaches that my job that I am called for is to instruct you guys to do the work of the ministry, to teach you in the Word of God and the things of God, to give you opportunities to connect with and be empowered by the Spirit of God that you might fulfill the work of the kingdom of God in our community. You are to do the work of the ministry. And so if you see something that needs doing for the kingdom of God, practically, spiritually, or in any other sense, do it. In our last service, right toward the end of service, the toilets overflowed in the men's bathroom. Backed up completely and started flowing out of the bathroom and into the hallway. Oh, glory to the Lord. You know what people did? They did the work of the ministry. People saw it and went, oh, yuck. Hurry, get that mop, get that bucket, get this thing. And people started cleaning up. And you guys came in for second service and you never knew the difference. You walked in there and it was spick and span and clean. And I tell you today that most of my staff is out of town at the college retreat. We have almost no staff at the church today. And the only way that a drama like that was handled in the church was by the body. And that's a perfect little tiny picture of how it ought to work. Ministry needs to be done, you do it. Don't call me, you do it. Amen, I love that. (laughs) Verse 13 says that we are to do these things until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, that we are to be functioning in this way, doing the ministry to the building up of the body until... There is unity, knowledge, and maturity. Until there is unity, knowledge, and maturity. I'll just give you a hint that we're going to have to work on that until the rapture of the church. It is a daily labor for unity, knowledge, and maturity. The net result is given to us in verse 14. As a result, we're no longer to be children. 
tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. As a result of everybody doing their part in the body, we're no longer like children. We're able to hold to and discern true doctrine. And we're no longer tricked or deceived. Very important that we fulfill our role in the body, in the church universal and local, because the last days, according to Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, will be characterized by deception. The disciples came and asked him about the last days, and the first thing he said was, see to it that nobody deceives you. And then it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. That in the last days, because of the spiritual battle that is being waged, there will be deception and trickery. If we as a body are all doing our part and functioning together, moving toward unity, knowledge of Jesus Christ, and maturity, then we are brought into true doctrine, we are grown into the fullness of the stature of Christ, and we are protected from deception. Very important in these last days. Deception is rampant in the church universal. Very important that you fulfill your part in the body to protect against these things. And then verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes a growth of the body for the building up of itself. It says here that Jesus Christ causes a growth when we do our part. Interesting that God loves to partner with us. He could do it all himself, but he likes to partner. He's made us his body. He's the head. So when we do our part, when we fulfill our function, our role, our calling, he causes the growth, the individual growth and the corporate growth. It is Jesus Christ as the head, the origin, the source, the sustainer, the leader, and the goal that causes a growth in the church, both as we grow in depth and in number, individually and corporately. And by the way, the end goal of that is to be built up in love, it says at the end of verse 16. To be built up in love. As you, if you as an individual as you mature in Christianity, as you grow in Christianity, are not finding yourself more in love with people, then there's something wrong in your Christianity. Because a genuine love for God always yields a genuine love for people. It's the way that God works. It's easier to love God because He's much more lovable than people. I know, I understand. But as we fall more in love with Him, He'll help us to love others. That's what God does. And a great measuring rod for your individual spiritual growth is, am I extending more grace to the people around me? Do I find myself more gentle, kind, and loving toward them, more generous with them, more caring, more like Jesus to them? If so, you're growing. If not, there's, there's some sort of disconnect. Something's not quite right. So we fall more in love with Jesus as we grow in maturity. We ought to love others. And so it goes corporately. As our church grows, now going to a third service, we're going to experience growth again. 
as, as our church grows, if we don't grow in love for one another and for the community around us, the lost and the saved alike, something's going wrong in the church and we need to talk about that if that happens. Okay? If that happens, we need to talk. Someone needs to pick up the phone and say, Pastor Britt, are, you know, are we growing in love? I need to look at you guys and say, hey guys, we've grown as a church, but are we growing in love? If not, something is awry. It's okay, it's not the end of the world, but let's stop and repent and pray and listen to the Lord and ask him to grow us in love. Amen? Amen. So the proper function of each member of the body is required for unity, knowledge, maturity, doctrinal purity, growth, and love. I want us to go to 1 Corinthians again, chapter 12 again, to just see this alliterated. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 again. Start reading in verse 21. We left off in verse 20 last, last time we were in chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much sure that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem, not God, which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness, whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, in order that there should be no division or schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Verse 26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. We are called as the body of Christ to extend the same care toward one another, compassionate, Jesus Christ sort of care. We're called to do it without preferentialness. Sorry, lost a word there. Without showing preference. We're to do it equally. We're just to care for one another, regardless of position or giftings or resources or anything else. And we are called to be connected in each other's lives in such a way that when one suffers, we suffer with them. In such a way that when one rejoices, we rejoice with them. Now, how does that happen in a church of over a 1,000 people that is continuing to grow? It doesn't unless we break it down into smaller units. That is why we have the home group in this church. Very, very large part of our vision is that every person that calls this church their home would be involved in a smaller group. Because when there's over a 1,000 people, it's too simple to just come in, sit in the back, and sneak out. And never be involved in anybody else's life. But Christianity is designed by God to be lived out in community. And so we now, as a growing church, have to begin to think together and take individual responsibility for how will we grow in intimacy with one another in relationship, though we're growing in number. As a responsible individual in the church, you must then get involved in a home group where you both are made accountable to someone and hold others accountable, where you are involved in their life and they are involved in, the, in your life, 
where you know them and you are known, where you can care for them and be cared for, where you can pray for and be prayed for. This happens in the home group, small group setting. Very, very important that we as individuals, we as a church, fight for that setting. The enemy would love to mess that up. But we need to love one another, connect with one another in such a way that I can rejoice when you rejoice and you can suffer when I suffer. And therefore, we are one body connected under the headship of Jesus Christ. We need to work at that and take personal responsibility for that. Understand? Amen? Let's go back to Colossians chapter 1 as we get ready to close. Colossians chapter 1 again. Verse 18. Switching gears now from the body of Christ and the headship of Jesus. We talk about the next phrase, finishing with this idea. What does it mean? It says again in verse 18, And he is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. What does it mean that he is the firstborn from the dead? It doesn't even make any sense in its wording, it seems. But you will remember from our study of verse 15 that firstborn in the Bible denotes priority. Not chronologically speaking, but in order of importance. That the firstborn was the heir or the one who had priority or the one who has top position. We saw that when we studied verse 15. It's clear throughout the Bible. And so it's saying here that of everybody that has ever been raised from the dead, Jesus Christ is the most important. No duh. He was not the first one to be raised from the dead in the Bible. There are those who were raised in the Old Testament and in the New before him. But of all those who have been raised, he takes preeminence, is the most important. You see, all the other resurrections were actually restorations. They were just restorations of the same physical life. All those people died again. Not so with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was the first to come out of death in an immortal, incorruptible body. The same sort of body that we will inherit when we enter into eternity. The Bible declares in 1 Corinthians 15 that this perishable body must put on the imperishable. That this corruptible body must put on the incorruptible. That this fleshly body is not suited for eternity. And so there is the promise for the believer, the resurrected body in glory such as Jesus was resurrected in, in which we will spend eternity. It's a wonderful thing. It's a mystery. It's glorious. It's neat to look at. So this event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, established him in his rightful position as supreme ruler over the realm of the dead. When he rose from the dead, he conquered sin and death. His resurrection establishes him as the supreme ruler over the realm of the dead. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. Do not be afraid, Jesus speaks. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, is a conqueror over death. He has authority over the realm of death. He has the keys of death in Hades. 
And through his death and resurrection, Jesus conquered the power of Satan, who prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, had the power to keep men and women in the realm of death. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and I, he himself, that's Jesus Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Very good news this morning. That when Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered and removed the power from Satan of death. And so he is now the ruler, Jesus is, over the realm of death. And as the firstborn from the dead, there is coming a time where Jesus Christ will call all men and all women out of death and to stand before him in judgment. It's called the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. If you're going to go to our website and look at our um, statement of faith, you'll see this included there. The doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. It's outlined for us in John chapter 5. That'll be our last passage. Go to John 5. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're going to start reading in verse 24. Jesus speaking. John 5, 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in him, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgments. Lest there be any confusion about what the good deed and the bad deed is, John chapter 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. To do good is to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because of his resurrection from the dead, Jesus has the authority and will call all men and women from the grave into resurrection, and there they will be judged. The believers he has the authority to allow, in, to allow into eternal life. The non-believers he has the authority to condemn them to a place called hell, where there's weeping, gnashing of teeth, and outer darkness. Where you go is entirely your choice. Where you go is entirely your choice. God already gave His Son, Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross. He already paid the price for your sins upon the cross. He already did it. All that you have to do is receive that forgiveness. The penalty's been paid. All you have to say is, Okay, Jesus, I repent of my sins. I turn from them. I turn toward you. I want that forgiveness. 
At that moment, then Jesus has the authority to give you eternal life and he will call your body from the grave, give you the resurrected body, and you shall go into glory. If you choose to reject that, then you choose to go to a place called hell. Jesus is saying to you right now today, don't go there. I died on the cross for your sins because I love you and want to keep you from that place. He didn't even create it for humanity. The Bible says it was created for Satan and his demons. Man chooses to go there when he rejects the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And there is the resurrection of the dead for judgment, both the resurrection of the righteousness of the righteous to eternal life and the resurrection of the wicked, those without forgiveness, to eternal damnation. What is your choice today? Today is the day of salvation. What is your choice today? What will you do with Jesus? He is the ruler over death. He has all authority. He is the head. He is supreme. He has first place in everything. What will you do with Jesus Christ? Don't harden your heart today. If you hear the voice of God speaking to you, say repent and be forgiven, then today is the day to do that. There is no promise with regards to tomorrow. Today is the day. What will you do with Jesus Christ? The choice is yours. You will either accept his forgiveness through the cross and have eternal life, or you will deny and reject it. And you chose a place called hell. And the last phrase of Colossians 1.18 says that these things are so, that he might come to have first place in everything. Let me ask the Christian. Jesus Christ, according to our study over the last several weeks in the book of Colossians, is to have first place in your life, does he? Your visceral response is, yeah, of course he does, I'm a Christian. But what is the truth today? Can we, as we enter into a time of worship, can we bring our hearts before the Lord and go, okay, heart, uh, okay Lord, examine, look at it. Tell me if there be any wicked way in it. Lord, look at my heart and see if I have put anything or anyone above you any idea or philosophy or ideology. Lord, look at my heart and see if there's anything above you. If there is, then you, you just need to repent. That's all. Repent's not a bad word. It's the sweetest word in the world. Because Peter told the nation of Israel in Acts 3.19 that when they would repent, times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. Repent's not a bad word. It's wonderful. If you've put anything before Jesus Christ in your life or anyone, repent today. Your life will never be in order until he is the head. That's God's design. And God's design is order, and it's right. And when you get things out of order, there's chaos in your life. Put Jesus at the top of your life today, and everything else will fall in line. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. And if you have not become a Christian yet, do it today. God loves you too much. Don't deny the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. All you have to do is this, in the quietness of your heart. Lord, I'm a sinner. I have been wrong. I've done wrong things. But I understand now that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for my sins. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I repent. I ask you to forgive me and to save me. At that moment, he'll save you. And you have a promise of the resurrection of the dead to eternal life. Glory with him. It's a really, uh, it's a no-brainer. It's a win-win situation. If you haven't made that decision today, today's your day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the wonderful things that we have beheld in your word. 
ask now that you would just bring us in line with your word. That as Christians, you would tear down everything that has exalted itself against the knowledge of you in our lives, Lord. That we would tear it down, that we would tear it out, that we would remove it, that we would repent of it and get it out. And that we would give you preeminence and priority. Lord, help us to do that as we worship you now. Help us to realign our lives, Lord. Give us grace for that. And Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, please save them. Please reveal to them their need to be born again, to have a brand new life. And when they ask, thank you that you will forgive them and give them a brand new life. Thank you for these things, Lord.